This episode was recorded on the country of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to extend our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and would like to extend those respects to the traditional custodians on the lands wherever you may listen to this podcast. G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and as always, it's a pleasure to have you guys joining us this week. We are sitting down for a chat with Annabelle Cleland. This is one of those chats where I went in with this pre-made assumption that Annabelle was a farm kid, grew up on a farm, found a way into agriculture through her family, etc. But actually, she's a journalist uh, down in Melbourne, lives on a small farm with her husband where they're growing merino sheep and bees and a few other bits and pieces. But Annabelle and I chat about storytelling and the role and the opportunities that there are for agriculture to share our stories differently. So, without going into too much detail up front, I reckon I'm just going to jump straight into it. We'll see. And and then this will be a good opportunity because we'll be able to go back to this and be like, all right, now that's what we're not going to talk about on Monday. And... That was boring. That got no downloads. So, yeah. Um, so, and this is what we're going to change. All right, Annabelle. Well, let's jump into it because we're talking, well, what are we talking? All things storytelling next week at um, the Marcus Oldham Rural Leadership Program. So this is our little teaser of what we're trying to work out, what to talk about. <laughs> yeah. How are you going? <laughs> and chances are we might just go on a tangent or something a bit random, but going well. Yeah. We're actually <laughs> sharing. We're meant to be sharing next week. So Weather looks awful though, so who knows what's going to happen. It's always... Tell me a little bit about um, where your family is and and where you guys are farming. Yeah, so we've been here for nearly four years. We're between Seymour and Ruffy in the Tarkham Valley in the north, southern Strathbogie area. Um, My husband grew up in Mansfield on a beef cattle property and I grew up in Melbourne in um q actually i went to um, a girl's yeah so i'm a city girl as well um but i did spend like every weekend riding and, and if if you ask me my soul says i'm country but my um evidence says i grew up in the city <laughs> like all of my um yeah and so we went so mum and dad had like a hobby block in mansfield as well and i went to school for a couple of years up there and just have spent all my like leisure time in regional areas at my um uncle and auntie's prop like station in new south wales all school holidays i think parents drop you at the farm to teach you hard work and discipline so that's interesting i had no idea i presume that you'd when i was writing out a few of the questions i just presume that you'd grown up on a farm there you go no i think i try and sell myself like that like i think i as soon as someone says like oh where did you grow up your personal insecurity but they're like you think that they're judging your knowledge about the industry. So I always, I always, um, you know, increase my connection to the country just to try and make them trust that I've got some knowledge. Um, so yeah, we got this place. So I've been, but I've been an ag writer for like 12 years, maybe I'm 32 and I've been writing since I was 20. So, um, yeah, I've always loved it. I said to my dad, oh, I really want to be, I want to do ag science. I think I want to be a farmer as a 14-year-old. And dad said, farmer? What on earth do you want to be a farmer for? No, you want to be a journalist. You want to be a journalist. At, you know, 13, I couldn't, I was just probably thinking I didn't 
know what other options there were and careers were like too overwhelming. So I thought, yeah, okay, you you know me, that sounds good. And then ended up getting into ag writing quick, pretty quickly and just confirmed like the love for the industry. I don't know really exactly where it's come from, but just, you know, the authentic people that I met growing up, I think, yeah, lured me in. So we, my husband and I, David, were always pretty like, focused on trying to get our own little block um, somehow and worked since we were together 21 to, to try and get our own little piece of land. Probably me just, or equally as aggressive. Um, yeah, so it's pretty exciting like nearly four years ago when we were able to do it because I don't think we would be able to do it in today's climate. Like it's pretty it's insane. It's got hard, hasn't it? It's gone quickly. Tell me what, what was it like when you were actually in that position to, to find the block of land and legitimately settle on something oh god I can feel wait so we visited this property and it, it's um small like compared to our neighbors but it's ours and we're pretty proud of it and I remember like I was quite early pregnant like maybe seven, six or seven weeks and I was just ravenous like I was so hungry and but we we're doing this big farm tour and I just wanted and I was just eating like fruit off these trees that were around and, um, and we just like trying to get anything. And as we left the place, like I felt faint because I was starving. But we both just looked at each other with like tears in our eyes. And it sounds silly because we had no idea about the, it was just as the big banking inquiry was going on. So it looked like we were going to have issues lending anyway because they were really um, like buckling down on lending, stretching anyone's means. And we certainly were. Um, but we both looked at each other like, even if we don't get this place, we need something. This is just so exciting. Um, so it was it was overwhelming though. And I think also like David grew up on a farm. So he had a lot of pressure. Like I expected him to know what he was doing. But then I had the arrogance, like I knew I was what I was doing after like reporting on such like brilliant, you know, producers for so long. I thought I can do this. You know, I know when to join. And so we did just replicate people that I thought were brilliant, but we're in the wrong climate, you know, we're wrong, wrong area like the sheep that we wanted were just we're we're hilly you know they're slow growing so it's very like different landscapes and stuff so we um had a few early lessons around you know being humble (laughs) learning the hard way pretty quickly and they they weren't too costly those early learnings yes they were they were costly (laughs) they were devastating and i was pregnant and twice like through both you know lambings and wet winters and feeding and trying to you know I remember I think I was like had a two-month-old strapped to my chest pulling a lamb with this like arctic wind blowing in my face thinking is this the life we really want like so it's everything you imagined and more (laughs) I just want to grow the nice tomatoes and have my kitchen garden. And here I've got like, you know, uterus juice on my face and a baby crying <laughs> or something. Yeah. And so how are you tracking a few years on? Where where are you guys at now? No. What are you running? And is it utopia? We're, it's utopia. Um, it is. It is. We feel really lucky. Like it's hard, but we've adjusted to that hardness, I think. Not hard. That sounds... Um, it's constant. That's it is really constant. But we're um, we've got this pro- so this property is three fifty acres, so not um, huge, but we're excited about it. Like we love it, and we've got a little adjustment block as well now, and running 
500 ewes. And so, we, yeah, we're, super, we're final, so we try and target that, like, 18 micron average. And we're just moving to, like, a nine-month shearing at the moment um, and getting, yeah, good lambing rates, trying to figure out, like, our approach to genetics and all of that. But then on the side of that, um, I've launched, a like, a digital farm store, like a website where we've got honey uh, as well. We've got beehives and merinos here as well. We actually, we've, we had beehives, or my husband's done it for, as a hobby for years and we just when I was um, on maternity leave we started to brand it and through social media which we'll I'm sure we'll get to um, I thought we've got all this excess honey like I'm just going to start to sell it at markets because we've got some I make skincare with the beeswax as well and that now is as lucrative as our wool check like it's about as even the income from like nearly I don't know 10 12 beehives to yeah. 500 views. I think I'm telling too much maybe, but it's just, it was fascinating. So I thought, <laughs> um, so we, we definitely value our bees as much as our ewes. <laughs> yeah, wow. And who, who collects the honey or have you got a flow hive? No, no, we're purists. Um, my husband does all the work. Yes, I do all the, and I take all the credit for it. <laughs> do all the marketing. <laughs> yeah. Front of house. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, 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 tell me, what's um, what have been some of the learnings in establishing your own, as you say, your online farm store? So much, I don't even know where to start. Really, I think it's like just finding. I think sticking to probably actually sticking to our values. Like we, I, I really wanted to be, you know, fully Australian made as environmentally um, gentle as possible, and that's from how we produce what we produce to how we sell it. So packaging, distribution, that's hard because you're enticed by like a, a cheap or a quick fix, whether it's on your farm or how you sell your products. And so it's really hard to make sure, keep reminding ourselves like what our objectives are because that's what our point of difference is. Like we want to connect everyone who, ha- who purchases a product or buys what we get to produce here or experiences it, then we have to really stick to those values. Um, mm. and, I, and I expect the same from brands that if I'm buying from a brand that, you know, I want it fully traceable, there's things that you don't necessarily expect, but if you suddenly get a package and it's wrapped in, you know, lots of plastic and you think I've just paid through the nose for something that's meant to be um, environmentally friendly, that's a bit disappointing. And so I've had some things where it's really hard to try and get, even, you know, manufacturing in Australia, that's been a difficult process to figure out um, and trace traceability. So we purchase fabric and trying to get that to a credit, like, so we make um, super fine merino bedding for babies with skin allergies. Um, And that has been a really hard process trying to get, the idea is that we might eventually grow to be able to select our own wool and make fabric out of our own wool. But in the meantime, I'm just kind of testing the market to see if there's an appetite and if there's, if it's worthwhile going down that path. Um, But actually what we found is that anything as untouched, like our honey and the, some of the skincare, that's what people are has gone quite gangbusters as well. But sorry, that's we're getting sidetracked. I'm not. No, no, no. That's plugging. well because I'm gonna. <laughs> and you can buy it at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Subscribe below. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell me, like, sorry, so are you marketing this just through social media, or are you turning up to farmers markets and 
how are you getting the word out there? Yeah, door knocking, farmer's market and social media. And it's about a third, a third, a third of uptake. So um, social media has really has been terrific. I don't think I'm great, like what we were talking about before we started recording, is about I'm trying to have a brand and then me as well um, on social media. And I'm finding that hard. Like I put either energy into, you know, presenting me and our story and our farm and what we're doing here and that, or I'm, or I'm doing the brand. And I'm finding our brand a little bit more um, not filtered, but I care so much that I'm not as honest maybe, that I overthink things a little bit more. That's what, like, you, you know, yeah, I overthink things a bit more when it comes to that. And so that's an, an interesting so, tangent, which we're going to jump straight into now. So tell me, like, yeah. why, why is there the protectionism over the brand to separate it from what you guys are actually doing in your everyday? There shouldn't be. There is in my head. I, I think it's, it's because it's your livelihood that you're <laughs> so afraid of potential punishment or backlash, like you do something wrong and the consequences feel not that they ever have been. They feel like they could be huge for our family. So a few years ago, this is for tangent one, um, a few years ago my sister and I launched a little wool brand um, and at the time I was reporting a lot on the wool industry and some of like the biggest challenges around mulesing about, you know, professional behaviour and industry and um, export challenges and reputation from consumers. And I got this um, email, like I Googled, I figured out previously who it was, but um, saying, you know, do, do you mule, is this wool from non-mules sheep? And, you know, a few other things that was charming. And I thought, so ever like, I've, and it was, it was, accre- it was um, accredited with a non-mule certificate. But I was, we were purchasing material from China and I just felt like it wasn't really, like, would it stand up? Like, yes, I had done everything I could. I just don't know if I trusted it, to be honest, the supply chain and some of that. So I presented this certificate because that's all I had. But whether I trusted it, ugh, I don't know. Like, and that's probably where this time round um, that I really want to do it. I want to have more control. And that's a really hard hard thing to do so when you're putting all your energy into ticking all these boxes and making sure that we're growing or purchasing as sustainably as possible because that's what we we're trying to promote to then put something off I don't know like even a video of us putting the honey together or something and I think I always like scour the room like oh the the is everything okay here? You know, is my hair tied back? Is every, do I look okay? I overthink it. Whereas on my like flock and fleece account, like I, I'm, it's raw, it's like feral and we're always messy and it's wild and it's unfiltered. So I don't, I didn't really answer your question at all. I just think the scrutiny, you expect it to come to the company because of like, a com- whether it's competitors, whether it's people have an issue against what you're producing or how you're producing it, but there it's, you know, people can be pretty cruel and they, can. they generally don't come to an individual. They generally come to a business maybe. Yeah. 
Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported? Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. It's a tough one. It's funny because, well, I, I sat in the, I had this exact kind of dilemma and it was 20, 20, beginning of 2020. And so I actually started the Instagram page April of 2019, started posting and the whole philosophy premise around humans of agriculture was create the platform, showcase people, help them share their story through it. Um, and that's kind of, they do the championing. I don't actually have to be part of it. And then as I was thinking about it, I think firstly, the part I was shit scared of putting myself out there for those exact reasons where people could come after you, but probably like, yeah, the second part, which like the realization I had was the brands that you trust the most, you feel like, you know, the people behind it. I genuinely felt like I knew them. I knew about who they are as people. And that's literally just through their social media. But then that was kind of the epiphany where it was like, okay, well, if I want this business to be successful, the brands that I most resonate with, I feel like I know the people behind it when I don't know them. And mm. to like the flip side of it, the, yeah, like there, there may be negativity, but to be honest, mm. and, and this is the thing when I see that people share their stories on our platform, like the, when they go and share it on their own socials and their friends pick it up and their family and stuff, the amount of nice comments that come through and it's like, didn't know you're doing this. So proud of you, blah, blah, blah. Like the list goes on. You're like, it would be 20, 30 times more than any negative comments that come through a hundred times. I, I think I, I agree. And I, it's a really hard one because it's what I think we've spoken about is it's about this vulnerability and kind of putting yourself out up for scrutiny. So I want to be like that. Absolutely. Mm. And I think I, I can in one, you know, personally and our, our family like are always inviting people here to have a look at what we're doing and how we're doing it. From a brand perspective, I'm not there yet. It's a, mat- yeah. a maturity thing maybe. <laughs> but um, I think you're right. I think as an industry there is opportunity of, of better storytelling by being more vulnerable. Because I think that that's, that is our most powerful marketing tool is our ability to connect to our consumers through emotions. Mm. And I don't think anyone has a better story than, than farmers or those in agriculture. Hmm. Is, there, is there a story you've shared over the years that sticks out as kind of a, a pinnacle or one that you think, wow, like that person was just extraordinary? Oh, that's really hard because it's one's not popping up into my head. But as soon as we stop recording, I'm going to have lots. So, well, tell me what you reckon it is. The stories that you remember. What I think I had an experience that um, changed how I looked at storytelling and communications, and the urgency and the fastness of it all. Where um, I was 
for former role as a national sheep and wool rider for Fairfax. Um, and I was on um, commentating on an elders wool tour and we went to China and Vietnam and it was just towards the last day, last couple of days of the tour. And we were in Vietnam and we were looking at this incredible feedlot and it was showcased as state of the art. Like, you know, since SCAS has been adopted and monitored and supported at some of these um, systems, like look how amazing the quality of their um, processing is. So abattoir and um, feedlot, but we only really looked at the feedlot. So I was up there taking lots of photographs. It was scorching hot and I, I don't know why I was wearing like white pants and I probably didn't look like a farmer representative at all. And so we went through and got photos of the group and it was really eye-opener. And then as we're driving back to the airport, there is this motorbike with a family, um, like a two-wheeled motorbike, this uh like dad on the front and a couple of kids on the back and a beast, like an entire, you know, five, 600 kilogram cow draped over this two wheel little trailer, like, and the heads, like it was crazy. So here we looked at this state of the art operation, but then, you know, the country were doing things how they did things. Like he wasn't panicked. He was used to probably traveling his, in a way that he looked quite calm but to us as an observer I thought how are we trying to influence change in a culture that can only do things the way that they're capable of doing things which is you know transporting with the vehicles and the means that they've got I digress so by the time I got back to the airport uh, news had broken which I wasn't aware of at the time about um, cattle being slaughtered with a hammer do you remember that you must have been in Indonesia uh, in sorry in Vietnam I can't remember what, it sounds a bit fake, foggy, but anyway, at the same time, there was this case of cattle being inhumanely slaughtered. And I think, it, I don't even know if it was in Vietnam necessarily, but we, it had got back to Australia and it had got back to Australian producers in the supply chain quicker than I was able to get on a plane out of Vietnam. So when I was at a stopover in, in China to come home, I had an email and a phone call from a really prominent, like, you know, one of the largest in Australia's um, exporters saying I have to send, like, if I could send politely as many photos to check what ear tags I was taking photos of and was I a mole that was releasing damaging information for the Australian industry. And it was within like five hours of me being at this feedlot. And so suddenly I thought, well, here I am on this wool tour, probably going to take a fortnight to turn around any of these stories at least. And yet you guys already know the information. Like uh, how are we this slow in telling these stories when there's, you know, live CCTV footage of what's going on in some of these places? Mm. The industry is so, so connected and yet I felt like our storytelling was quite slow and delayed and so filtered in way, not like um, filtered as such like it was planned rather than just being a bit more raw like why didn't I just get out a video and start doing a few more um like front seat sort of reporting yeah beyond me so that changed that's when I realized that you know maybe we've got to start to connect and and we are you know they always say like journalists you know you get you get the front seat of life and agricultural journalists like awesome positions we get to commentate on the most amazing things every day the way we do it, maybe we need to be a little bit more approachable and um, 
you know, like we are with what we're asking of farmers with social media. Maybe we could do that as well and live Q&As and all of that. So, so do you think we, are we going to see a shifting of kind of that guard? Like I only, you think of how, um, say, like YouTube used to, if you wanted videos, you'd go to YouTube. If you wanted, and then all of a sudden Snapchat and Instagram videos come through and then you want to read articles or press releases, that was fine. You go to people's websites, et cetera. But then um, Twitter came out. So whatever it is, 250 characters. And like I was doing an application for um, a bursary thing the other day and it was, it was, I think it was 300 characters they gave you to answer what's your project, why are you interested in it, how are you going to do it? Like 300 words on each. Oh, sorry, 300 characters on each. It's like everything's getting shorter. My- People's attention spans. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Is that, yeah, is, is that, is it the changing face of journalism, you reckon? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think also like we know that, you know, some of the most engaged videos or um, engaged articles are like, you know, shot off your phone. They, they fall and they're looking at the ground because you look like you drop, you know, it's all like shaky and, and poorly because it feels real. Yeah. The other thing, and people want to feel like they're a part of it and not as curated or, um, you know, even commenting on stories and responding and writing to the the author, not because they want to make a comment on your story, but they want to be a part of the conversation. So there's this Mm. expectation to be involved and engaged. And I feel like that's what social, social media has taught us all is that, we can all be a part of that conversation. Um, yeah, journalism, I don't, I'm kind of, I think so. I think that the, the way, and you, you know, like on um, Instagram now, you're seeing a lot of these really hard news stories presented with a photograph and. Five sl- swipes really? with a few words. Yeah. Who is it? The Daily, the daily Oz, like in terms of. They do their daily updates of whatever it was, even like their election stuff. And it's, it is, it's five swipes or whatever it is. And it's like, oh, well, I feel informed enough on that. Like, it's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And everyone asks you questions and you'll say, oh, I'm just sorry, I've just got the headline. <laughs> do you feel, um, much more information. do you feel conflicted as a trained journo in, in the longer form of where things have gone? Yeah. When I started, we were writing like an article would be 2,000 words. And then now, you know, it's 350, three, 400, 450 is the long article, really. Um, yeah. You know, that's a, that's, you want to get in a lot of information. And I feel like we've got a reputation um, for being a little bit more in depth in some ways. But maybe that's just our ego because we don't sometimes have the chance to, deli- to, to provide in depth information when you're down to that many words. So, it is teaching us new ways. And I actually feel like some of the younger journos, they do it better because they've been trained differently. So, you know, we got the old like pyramid of information, like here's your intro and you, you know, work back. And it's, I don't think it's like that. I wonder actually at uni what they're teaching journalists now about delivering of information because I'd say it's a lot different to that. But one thing about it all, like put the journalism hat aside, I think that the storytelling now you've you know we talk about like community journalists 
that's all of us now on mm. through social media. That that's where that cool opportunities lie in, you know, promoting your brand or promoting your commodity or promoting your industry, your your company that you work for. Like you've got this chance. And I was I've been working on a story um, about you know the crown. Sorry, crowned licenses have been opened. Crown River frontages, which have got grazing license, have been open to camping in Victoria. Yeah, gotcha. So, yep. yep sorry, that was a li- really long-winded way to say that. Um, I was thinking the casino. So, what's happening here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a tangent. <laughs> 12, tangent twelve. Um, anyway, one of the quotes was from. Um, a farmer that challenged this to say, you know, they've got so many issues about privacy and liability and biosecurity and danger and policing and all these issues that they've raised. And the response was, well, there's 10,000 farmers in Victoria that are impacted or 10,000 farmers in Victoria. And there's a million recreational fishers in Victoria. That was just just a quote, but it sat with me, that idea of like 10,000 of you and a million of us like farming and agriculture is a really small farming is a, is a really small population percentage of the nation so I think that there's a lot of challenges with that like getting heard on a political level being understood some of the challenges being listened to you know you talk about that urban and farming divide and things people being disconnected from their food so there's so many challenges there but I actually think there are way more opportunities because of that than mm. there are challenges like people are genuinely interested people want to know where their food comes comes from and how it's being made and and how you live like this idea that you're out you know at the crack of dawn shifting sheep before you go off and you're you know fixing fences or whatever you're doing in this this office space it's just looks like magic or doesn't look like hell when it's you know you're up to your waist in mud and you're trying to rescue a lamb maybe but I think that inviting people onto your farm, we've always said, like, we should, you know, can you can you defend yourself or can you share your story by inviting someone on your farm? I feel like this through social media, that's our chance to invite someone on our farm to say we're really proud of what we do and we really care. Um, and then, and I think it's it's funny because when that comes to letting, bringing people onto your farm, questions come around biosecurity and all that. But it's like a few years ago, Cheers. Eight, <laughs> eight years ago, um, went to China and we went to this piggery and I'll say it was like a, a pig motel. Like it was very flash, but um, the whole farm from the paddocks where they were cutting the fodder through to the individual pig stalls, they had cameras set up across the whole place, sat on their website and anyone, any of their consumers or anyone in the world could just log into this website and watch what was happening either in the pig sheds themselves or out on the farm and get an understanding of what was happening. And it's like, in terms of transparency, it's like that there's nothing to hide there because every sneeze, every cough would be yeah, live for anyone to see. Um, but as you that's, say, like the ability awesome. to, Oh, it was mind blowing, but the ability to share these stories mm. is it, it's absolutely there. And it's um, like this user generated content stuff is like, everyone has a phone, like, I've been filming the last few days and I've literally just had two iPhones set up on, on tripods at different angles because the iPhone's good enough now to be of video quality, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
will be the judge of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, what was I? Oh, I think also like COVID, you know, we've got, we're used to scanning in. That's, we've kind of been educated on how to connect virtually in the last two years. So that pressure for, you know, scanning your QR code, I mean, like it was not long ago, only a few years ago, that was like scoffed at industry events, like, you know, in UK, they've got QR codes on their meat, like mm. that, that's impossible in Australia. What's impossible until consumers say that they demand it. And that's where, that's where we're at, that, you know, I think that already in the wool industry, they're chasing um, carbon, carbon neutral or wool so that we think that if you're, you know, um, non-mules and you've got, you're accredited to some of the, you know, RWS or Authentico or Sustainable, some of these other ways of storytelling, which to me is just another form, another layer to your storytelling, then you're, you're the top of your game. Like that's, that's really elite growing. But mm. now you've got consumers saying, oh, no, we've moved beyond that. We're actually now wanting you to share with us, you know, connect on the farm, like what you're doing. And we want to see progress on your farm where you can see that you're environmentally not only sustainable or caring, you're actually improving the land because, and that's what we're going to buy. And there's some premium products. Like most, I'm probably saying some really big opinions as if they're, but they're all, these are just my opinions. I can't <laughs> say them as facts. Preface. But, um, yeah, um, the, a lot of Australians' commodities are, are premium on a global scale. Like we produce such beautiful, um, safe food. That pressure to be transparent in how we produce it is only going to increase. So mm. I think that there's such cool, cool opportunities that even if you don't have a product or you don't even have a brand, you can contribute to agriculture storytelling in such a positive way you know, by being vulnerable on, on social media or sharing your, your shearing or your fleece throw or picking your harvest. And, and some of that is, as you know, it's not just ag, people in agriculture that are completely obsessed with it. It's those beyond that are just fascinated about, you know, where their food and clothes come from. Well, and we it's funny because it's, it's the little things too that um, like you, you sometimes gloss over. And for instance, the I was listening. So every morning I listen to the Squiz podcast, that 10 minute update, but their piece that they closed it on today was down in Western Victoria in Hamilton. There's a Jack Russell that drives the ute and it keeps steering itself at the sheep. So what the owners do, they put it in first gear and then they jump out and the little Jack Russell steers the ute, but every time it'll balance the steering wheel. So it steers itself towards the sheep because that's where it wants to go. <laughs> and it's like, well, this is whatever they've got. They've probably got 50,000 listeners a week on their platform, I think. Um, and it's like, well, actually agriculture is part of that conversation and people are genuinely yeah. interested and they're laughing about it. It's like, how do you bring that humour into it but start to do it more often and every day and get access mm. to that audience that's already interested? Mm. They're hungry for that content. Like we just... Light-hearted you know, we, we stuff. Get, the world's yeah, serious. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think also like when you haven't, when people aren't sure of where their, their food or clothes or fibre comes from, there is this um, maybe critical or like pessimistic, these assumptions of, oh, it mustn't be honest or these questions around it. So bringing humour 
to it. It's such a great platform to, you know, diffuse any, oops, sorry, I've got these pop-ups. Um, yeah, to diffuse any negativity in the industry. Mm. No, I agree. I want to, I want to ask you one, one last or two last questions before we go, but the role of these influencers in this, do you see them as helpful or troubling? And I'll say the influencers in the sense of the ones that are taking the mickey out of it for a laugh. Oh, helpful. Helpful. Like I think so. Um, I think they're in, I think they're really, really powerful marketing tool. Yeah. You know, they, what do they say? Any publicity is good publicity. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, we can challenge that. No, that, I take it not even when it comes to agriculture because I think some of us are still wounded by some negativity in years gone by. But, um, no, I think there's As long as it's not harmful, if, it's... <laughs> yeah, if it's humorous. Yeah. Like, I think more of us should be taking the mickey. Um, oh, yeah. We're all getting way too serious. You know, there's that funny YouTube clip. We, like, play it far too often in our house about, like, you know, look, this money, it's growing from the, <laughs> it's you know, this crop of corn, it's just growing money. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, that's You're going to have to share that with Please me so me. I can go and share that. Uh, <laughs> Now I'm gonna find it. Okay. I don't think I'm. I don't think I know it. Oh yes, you do. I've just done a really. I actually wanted to be an actress at one stage, so I won't. Um, okay. Anyway, well, I'll share it with you. It's really oh. funny. But I think it bring. I think. I think it bring like bringing humor and just any sort of different view of what how we get to farm. I think surely is is positive because if it's not us sharing those stories, it's someone else. Don't you yep. think that someone from that you've definitely that are manipulating stories? So, and there's some terrific ones. Like there's some really great farming um, influences or agricultural influences that I probably spend far too much time a day watching. But they, they're so funny. They're so clever. They're so funny um, and they're so accurate. And it's um, yeah, no, yeah. I agree. What's your view? Sorry about um, do you? sometimes feel like it could be negative mm. harmful sometimes i watch these people and i'm like geez you come across like a bit of a dick uh but no i think yeah i think i think humor is a really important tool to build equity um and understanding with anyone so i think i think as aussies we really value it so i reckon it's um i reckon it's a good thing so there are mm. some which are absolutely hilarious, <laughs> hilariously mm. accurate, actually. I was at, at the cattle yards and then I was chatting to two agents either side of me and then all of a sudden at the exact same time, boom, both on their phone and I was like, that, that reel that I saw the other day absolutely nailed this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, one last question before we catch up next week. But so you get the chance to give year 10 students in, we'll say Q, advice around why they should pursue or could pursue a career in agriculture what would you say to them i i would say it's oh gosh that i didn't that's a bit of a curly one i would say it's probably the most fulfilling in 
all areas of your life. And it's more than a career, it's probably more of a lifestyle. So you get creative outlet, you get authentic people. There's a huge element, if it's not most significant, outdoors. You're physical, you're mentally stimulated. You know, it's a global significance, but you've got a real purpose. So I don't think there's any career other than agriculture that you would, could tick so many boxes in being so fulfilled in your entire life and potentially get paid paid for it and that's not just farming that's agricultural supply chain roles and you know professional roles when you get to be a part of producing something well guys thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the humans of agriculture podcast hope you guys enjoyed that chat with annabelle and chatting all things about storytelling and opportunities for agriculture to share stories differently ahead of our chat next week we would love for you guys to reach out wherever you send it done well what industries what brands it might be movies or tv shows get in touch with us uh, at humans of agriculture with an underscore on social media or head over to our website humansofagriculture.com i'd love to hear from you look after yourselves stay safe stay sane i'll chat to you next week